Good morning, noon or night, wherever and whenever you are listening, you are listening to The Shift. I am your host. My name is Doug McKenty. This episode was recorded on August 27th, 2020. Find out more about The Shift on the web at www.theshiftnow.com, on Facebook and YouTube at The Shift with Doug McKenty, or on Twitter at McKenty. My guest on the program today is Tanner Cook, the author of The Case Against the State, Refuting the Proposition of Statism, and more recently, Liberty and the Will to Power, a Manifesto for the Amoral Libertarian. Tanner was raised in a patriotic and conservative family in rural Minnesota before enlisting in the Marine Corps, where he spent four years in service to the state. Contemplating a career in law enforcement, he embarked on a personal journey to understand the relationship between the individual and state power, which transformed his beliefs and caused him to change the course of his life. His explorations of anarchy from Ayn Rand to Nietzsche coalesced to create a body of knowledge that make a great follow-up to my interview with Derek Bros concerning the anarchist concept of agorism. While Derek chose to follow a path more in line with Eastern and indigenous philosophies, Tanner has chosen to test his earlier beliefs outlined in the case against the state against the more esoteric writings of the German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche. Many students of European philosophy often begin with the quest for a logical and rational explanation of the world. In his first book, Tanner explores the concepts of the non-aggression principle and natural rights to elucidate a worldview in which the monopoly of state power cannot find justification. Step by step, he logically dismantles the typical arguments for state power and then rationally recreates a world order built on the primacy of the individual based on existence within the state of nature. Using natural law and non-aggression, he is able to posit a worldview where violence is not necessary unless used in self-defense. Not satisfied to stop there, Tanner's philosophy evolved through a deep evaluation of the works of Nietzsche, whose philosophy eschews the notion that logic and reason are useful tools. In Nietzsche's world, reason devolves into solipsism, and ultimately social change can only manifest through a will to power that is inherent in all human interaction. According to Nietzsche, it is this drive that creates strong individuals capable of breaking free of cultural conditioning, allowing some to push humanity further along its evolutionary path towards civilization. In Liberty and the Will to Power, Tanner doubts even his own logical constructs and develops a theory of anarchy based on these post-Nietzschean concepts. The resulting work provides a unique perspective on modern anarchy as well as a more mature and realistic understanding of the role of the free individual existing within a culture defined by state power. Stay tuned for this fascinating conversation between Tanner Cook and myself as we take a deep dive into the philosophy of Nietzsche, which I think will be interesting to those unfamiliar as well as those who already have a solid understanding of his work. Find links to the book at Tanner Cook on Facebook and Instagram, or look for Liberty and the Will to Power on Amazon. I want to thank Tanner for agreeing to this interview, and thank him for helping to make the shift. Hey, everybody, and welcome to this, the 51st episode of The Shift. I'm your host, Doug McKenty. I'm joined today with Tanner Cook. We're going to talk a little bit about anarchy. He's written this excellent book called Liberty and the Will to Power. It's kind of a libertarian um, interpretation with a post-Nietzschean bent. So um, last week we talked with Derek Burroughs a little bit about agorism, and today we're going to get a little bit of a different angle on uh, this idea of libertarian uh, anarchy. So uh, I'm excited about this. I've been an anarchist for quite a while myself, and I always like to talk about the many different flavors of anarchy that are out there, so I'm happy to have Tanner on do you want to give people just a little bit about your history and maybe explain why you wanted to write this book? Sure. So I began like most uh, libertarians, anarchists, um, came from a family, very, uh, let's say conservative Republican, um, you know, that typical Midwestern background, joined the military, did that thing, uh, got out, wanted to be a cop. And I very quickly realized after being introduced to some new ideas, um, that wasn't the pathway for me. Uh, that developed into more of a libertarian leaning thing. Uh, I started diving deep into philosophy and uh, religion, politics, things like that. It wasn't too long, I'd say about maybe two to three years where I was a full-fledged anarchist. I was all against the states and everything. Mm -hmm. Decided to write a book. Uh, the Case Against the State was my first one. Really just a collection of arguments on the ineffectiveness of state intervention. Um, 
the ridiculousness of their policies. I went a little bit into kind of the, um, I guess, the, what makes up the state, uh, what it's comprised of, how it came about. Um, and then I dove a little more at the end into some moral arguments. Now, about a year later, which brings us to present, um, kind of stumbled upon some thinkers that changed my perspective, Nietzsche being one of them, uh, the strongest, the strongest influence. Uh, his ideas on morality um, and kind of just the collective, I guess the collective tide that we see throughout all history and how that influences people's decisions and behavior. I saw a lot of similarities in how the libertarians, or I should say the mainstream libertarian anarchists kind of um, go about trying to influence others. I saw some striking similarities in that. So I wanted to add a new perspective to it, you know, the amoral perspective, I guess, as what I would label it um, in keeping with Nietzsche's thoughts. And uh, just to, to add something to the conversation that I think is useful when it comes to trying to affect change and to live a more free and uh, liberated life. Mm -hmm. And so that's, that's kind of what uh, liberty and the will to power is all about. Yeah, it was really interesting. And, you know, I guess what I found interesting about it is that it's a, actually kind of similar to my own path where I started, um, as you're talking about, my parents were conservative. I started really looking into it as a teenager, became more libertarian. I was reading Ayn Rand, uh, started reading a little more, getting more into economics, started reading Rothbard, and then became an anarchist. But uh, when I went to school, I studied philosophy as well. And once I hit Nietzsche, it was a, a real similar thing um, where you just start to see so much of the moral dogma in everything. I mean, just all around in everything, especially in, in, in the left-right paradigm, I think. Uh, a lot of what this show has been about is I, I'm trying to break people out of it's like the left right paradigm is such a bad habit, you know, for such um, a lot of the reasons that you described in the book, actually, it just you get stuck into these dogmas uh, and you and you forget that I think real freedom is actually a, more of an individual path. I mean, every person has to choose it for themselves. Uh, and it, it requires this separating yourself, I think, from this idea of just following a traditional moral dogma, because those dogmas are all, I mean, as you kind of touched on in the book, and maybe you could talk about this a little bit more, this kind of more like a master-slave dichotomy that occurs in, in every moral dogma. Uh, so people really lose their personal power as soon as they start to participate in any of these systems. Yeah, so I mean, I'm sure you're well aware and well versed in the master slave morality concept that Nietzsche presents. And I see more of the, the slave morality present in the libertarian anarchist approach, or at least, you know, I don't want to clump everybody together, but uh, in the mm -hmm. more general mainstream, uh, that's kind of what I see. And it's, it's not a pathway to freedom in, in my perspective. I don't think that's an effective way to go about liberating yourself and liberating others. And of course, to bring it back to the individualist perspective, you can't, you can't free those around you without finding a pathway to free yourself first. Uh, it's just, it doesn't work that way. You need to find a pathway that works, a pragmatic way to live a liberated life. And then from there, you can expand on that to share that pathway with others. But uh, the typical mainstream um, libertarian ethic really seems to mirror that of what we've seen in most of the um, dogmatic moral interpretations and worldviews. And it's, it's concerning for me. Um, it's not that I condemn that morality um, at all, but it is, it seems like an impediment to becoming liberated yourself. Um, Mm -hmm. and then expanding on that and liberating the culture around you. So I think we need to reevaluate that. And I, I think Nietzsche presents a lot of concepts that are very powerful in reevaluating the way that you interpret uh, behavior around you and even your own decisions uh, in your life to do something maybe a little bit more pragmatic is the word that comes to mind. I think um, do something that works, uh, embrace the theory, um, that, uh, that's effective. Uh, I think Nietzsche really brings that to the table. And so that's, that's what I t attempt to do in Liberty and the Will to Power. 
Yeah, it really comes across. And when when you're talking about the um, the kind of modern dogmatic perspective of of the libertarian movement, you're talking about ideas like natural law and the non-aggression principle, which libertarians tend to cling to. I think, as you point out, do you want to elucidate this concept just a little bit for the for the viewers? Because you know, just the idea of getting away from from a dogmatic point of view to more of an individual point of view, I think is really important and something that you brought out. And it's interesting because, you know, on the surface, I think that ideas like uh, the non-aggression principle are going to sound great to people or this concept of this objective natural law that we can all follow. So where do you see the problems with that? So it's a very controversial thing. And even as I was writing it myself, I couldn't believe that I was actually arguing against or critiquing in more of a negative way, natural law and the non-aggression principle. These are things that, especially in my first book, I've preached all about. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I was a huge fan, still am really a huge fan of Rothbard. Um, You know, I I think Ayn Rand was a, a genius in many ways. So it's not, I don't want to disparage those thinkers because they bring so much to the table. But at the same time, I found myself arguing against them because of their dogmatic, um, lifestyle and worldviews and their, their ethic. And I think it can become harmful in, in, in actually liberating yourself. You know, I, I, the thought experiment came to mind as I was trying to reason this out in my head as to how could I possibly argue against these things? Why, why am I feeling inclined that these are not useful? You know, if you, if you imagine being in a room And in the middle of that room, there's a table. And on the center of that table, there's a loaded firearm. And you're in this room with a bunch of other people. You know, you can, you can abstain from reaching for that firearm on principle, on moral grounds that power is, is uh, immoral and that it's unnecessary, uh, you know, and theoretically we can reason that out with a non-aggression principle. We can reason out that uh, power is an unnecessary thing and even in a harmful thing. We can reason that out into a perfect rational argument mm-hmm. as has been done by very uh, intelligent thinkers. But at the end of the day, we all know that somebody in that room is going to reach for that firearm and it becomes a choice for the individual. Do you want to be a slave to that power or do you want to liberate yourself? Do you want to be free from it? And it comes down to really only two options. Um, you either, you know, attain that power, you either reach for that firearm or you become a slave to it and whoever does grab it. And so that's a really uncomfortable thought to think about, especially for us liberty minded individuals who, you know, maybe we have a strong sense of property rights and, uh, you know, the natural law ethic kind of resonates with us a lot more. And um, to think that the best course of action might be to actually attain that source of power over others is very unsettling. I still, you know, it still kind of strikes a chord in me uh, and I wrote the thing. So it's right. It's challenging, but I believe it to be uh, an effective, maybe the only effective way to actually liberate yourself from the tyrant, from the oppressor, uh, as opposed to the slave morality way of trying to lower the oppressor and the tyrant down to your level. Um, I don't think that's a path to liberty. Yeah, I mean, this is the crux of the book, and I, I'm really actually happy that you wrote this and, and you're getting this idea out there because it's worthy of having a lot of conversation about because, like you mentioned that term, pragmatic. I mean, at the end of the day, and I don't, and we can we can talk about this, I don't think that Nietzsche necessarily is advocating a concept of, of might makes right, but nonetheless, there's this practical understanding that we can be thinking great thoughts all day long. And at the end of the day, just like you're talking about the guy who reaches for the gun is going to be the one that controls all the rest of us in the room, unless we can stand up to that, unless we actually individually choose to do something about it. So you've got to take it to this real practical place where it's like, well, obviously power does have something to do with what's going on here. Right. I mean, we can't, we can't have these theoretical arguments all day long. Um, so do you want to touch on that? And then let's get a little bit more into this idea of, of the master and the slave, especially the slave morality, because I, I like the way that you described it in the book, uh, the, the 
various different dogmatic systems that result in just becoming a follower, you know, just becoming part of the group if you're following this dogma and how it ultimately weakens us and takes us out of that position of power and, and is not really that pathway to, to liberty or to individual freedom. Yeah. So, um, you know, Nietzsche was great <laughs> reading him and learning more about him. Uh, he would, he would present an idea like the, the immoralist perspective. Um, and then he would almost simultaneously endorse a moral perspective in one sense and then attack it with another. And right. it was just, <laughs> it's fascinating reading him because he was so anti-dogmatic and, you know, he recognized the practicality and the value in all of these different perspectives. But when it comes to the individual, it's almost as if that's when it all comes together. What does the individual desire? Well, if the individual like us maybe desires to be liberated and then as a consequence, liberate others, that's when you can start to think, okay, so this system of morality that I'm currently in is, is that fitting for me? Um, is that the pathway I need to go? And that's where I think the amoral perspective really starts to shine and really starts to liberate you in, in mm -hmm. being able to envision a clear pathway forward. Um, you know, as far as the slave morality and what we see in libertarian, uh, libertarianism and even in some, some respects, anarchism, you know, it's almost, if we think back to the thought experiment, they, the argument seems to be not to use, you know, they argue against the use of the gun. Um, and they, um, that's their campaign, right? To argue against the use of the gun. And it's kind of based on this concept, uh, almost a token concept that um, power is something that can be destroyed and shouldn't exist. And where I would challenge that uh, is that I would say that power is a more fundamental element in the social landscape. It, you can't get rid of it. It's, it exists um, just like all of us exist. And it's not something that can be argued. I mean, you can argue against it. And theoretically, with the natural law and non-aggression, you can have a perfectly rational argument as to why power isn't necessary. But that doesn't negate the fact that it still exists it's there mm -hmm. it's an element within within our environment and we have to deal with that and that's where i think the amoral amoral perspective comes in it's like okay well it exists now what and so to use it can be an effective tool to um to not be to not have it used against you uh which would equate to being liberated now that's, you know, if you're a fan of Tolkien, that kind of goes completely against what Tolkien preached um, right. in his books. And Tolkien was just a genius, but he, you know, I think that's, that's a valid criticism against him is that power isn't something, you know, it's not something foreign. It's, it's within the environment. It's not something that can be destroyed. It's, it's, it's always present. So the question is what to do with it. And I think um, the libertarian ethics seems to mirror this um, slave morality that opposes the morality of those who wield the power. And that to me is not useful. Um, it can, it can produce a lot of, a lot of ideas that, that resonate with at least me, you know, the, the value of the individual and the respect for property rights, um, the, the uh, integrity of markets and property rights and all of that, you know, those are things that I, I think are great and phenomenal ideas, but they don't come without their own negative aspects and elements too. So it's a, uh, it's a very complicated uh, discussion, but I think it's one that we do need to have. Um, it's one that we need to evaluate. Um, and I think the amoral perspective brings a pathway that's more pragmatic to liberating at least the individual. And then we can talk about a pathway mm -hmm for liberty for all, if such a thing could even exist. Right. I think, um, you know, as I've thought about these things, and a lot of times libertarians will talk about uh, self-defense, but self-defense is also, a, a, and even uh, when we talk about, you know, property rights, what we're really talking about is a legal understanding of boundaries. So a lot of times we're talking about, you know, 
we, you still have to really have well-defined boundaries and then you have to have the power, the personal power to stand up to protect your boundaries or else somebody's going to come and, and, you know, they're going to wreck your boundaries, whether it's your property right boundaries or your personal emotional boundaries, you know, you get yourself in all kinds of relationship problems when you don't have solid boundaries, just thinking of it in psychological terms. Um, but I think that this is a, this is an important aspect because Nietzsche gets a bad rap for being this kind of power tripper and people think that it's all about the will to power and, you know, he's not having any kind of compassion for people. But I think that, uh, a closer reading of Nietzsche really allows you to understand that he's just talking about self-empowerment so that you can protect yourself against, you know, because power is a part of the environment, just like you're saying, and you have to be able to set really solid boundaries and you have to be willing to stand up for yourself. Um, and, um, you know, this is an important aspect I think people forget because so often, like, and we can go into this a little bit deeper. I'd like to get a little deeper into the idea of the, of the slave morality and how dogmatism tends to result in, in this in this kind of groupthink or this collective thinking um, that results in this master-slave dichotomy. But without tapping into your own will to power, you're just going to end up being a pushover, right? You're not going to actually be there to protect those boundaries, to protect those property rights when somebody tries to, you know, break down your fence or break down your boundary. Um, right. So, um, you know, there's a couple points in there you know it's i would question the, the conception that most libertarians have of being liberated you know i i see most libertarians and i'm going to refer to libertarians i kind of group in uh the, the anarchists in there too mm -hmm. um but you know i see most of them as seeking this ethic that they have they, they want that to be the ethic out there. That's what they're really pushing for. They're not really pushing for being liberated themselves. They're more or less trying to um, have this, this ethic of theirs manifest. And they believe that that is freedom. Well, I would question that. You know, I, I don't know if that is freedom. I think that's just the, they're trying to construct the fences of what they believe is a greener pasture. And they're trying to bring herd the sheep into that pasture of what they believe is a more, and maybe it is, maybe it is a greener pasture. Um, I think you can make that argument that the libertarian ethic would produce a better world. Um, but I, I still question the, the um, quality of Liberty within that conception, you know, um, I, I bring it back to the individual. If you want to be liberated, you know, be free yourself, find a way to be free from those who would um, make you a subject of theirs. So that's, that's the first thing. And then touching on the self-defense aspect that you, you kind of um, uh, brought to the table, you know, it's, you have your, your property lines and you, you want to defend that, but you are always going to be at the mercy of those who have more power than you do. Uh, you know, you can you can define those property lines. You can define your your personal boundaries and what you believe is acceptable um, and with others. But it doesn't matter at all if somebody else who has more authority than you or who has more power than you um, disregards that. And so you're again stuck in this um, kind of this dichotomy between: Do you harness the power yourself to ensure that you remain free? Or do you abstain um, on moral grounds and remain the slave? Um, I, I tend to think that the more practical uh, solution is to harness the power. Um, you know, and it's a, it's a I, it's an uncomfortable thought even for me, even though I wrote the thing. And you know, you imagine that thought experiment of being the one who grabs the firearm off the table. What's the very first thing that you have to do once you grab it? you have to turn it on everybody else because they want it too. Mm -hmm. So the very first thing you do once you assume power is you have to almost threaten to use it against everybody who's, who would come against you. And, and so, and then that spirals out from there and you can get this tyrannical, um, oppressive, destructive, um, character, uh, that we see all the time. Um, you know, it's, it, brings in the kind of question the human nature. Are we destined to repeat this thing over and over again? I don't know. Um, Nietzsche had this idea of, you know, the Ubermensch, the, the overman, the man who, the creator of his own values, um, you know, that's, 
I think whether or not that is actually possible, um, I don't know, but it's maybe something to strive for. Somebody who can grasp that power without um, devolving into this uh, degenerate um, tyrant. Um, mm-hmm. So it, it's, it's, a, it's a tough conversation, but I think it's worth having and I wanted to bring it to the table. Yeah, I mean, that, that goes back to, the, to Tolkien's idea, right? That the ring of power ultimately is going to be corrupting and there's no way around it. But it does seem like there is a, I, I mean, Nietzsche talks about it and it's so funny because it, it, you almost, he, he recognizes uh, the corrupting influence there, but it's like there's a light at the end of the tunnel for him and that once you're liberated, you can do with it what you want. You don't have to be a tyrant. You can use it to help people if you want. But if you don't pass through this, you know, if you're not looking into the abyss, then you never go through, you, you, you don't, you're not really looking at reality the way it actually is. Like you're talking about, like power is just a part of the environment. If you're not participating with it, then you're missing out on, on some important aspect. It doesn't have to result in this, in this corruptive influence, but it is a temptation, I guess, you know, and it's something that we have to, maybe we have to watch out for. But I think, again, I mean, I think there was something that you said in the book about the difference is that people that hold to dogmas or or this moral point of view are are talking about the way the world ought to be and we really want to be talking about the world as it is this is just the way it is people you know <laughs> and and we need to participate in life as it is and it's not it, it maybe it's not even good or bad i mean we can't put a value judgment on it we just need to recognize that this is how it is and we can't fabricate these utopian concepts that somehow we're going to rationalize our way out of this and then everything's going to be perfect, you know? Right. And of course you can rationalize virtually anything. You can always come up with a rational argument for whatever it is that you desire. You know, Nietzsche, what was Nietzsche's quote about, um, you know, every, every passion has its own, you know, rationality and every, you know, every desire has its own, I can't remember the quote, but I think you understand what I'm saying. It's they're, they're, we rationalize our desires. So you can come up with these rational arguments. It doesn't matter how rational it is. At the end of it, there's something that you want out of it that you can't really justify. Um, and it's, you know, yeah, it's just, it's incredibly complex. Um, Nietzsche is, is I think, so far ahead of even our time now in, in his thoughts on these things and how he, can, how he can recognize the way that the world is mm-hmm. and, and try, to, uh, try to, to introduce concepts that are more effective in the world that we live in. And it seems like the moral interpretation well it's not it doesn't seem like it it is the fact that moral interpretation uh, immediately creates that distinction between um is and ought you know going back to hume it's it's and you can't it's not a it's not practical uh, we have to deal with the world the way it is um and to try to adjust it to the way you think it should be has time and again proven disastrous yeah, I mean, that's just it. If you're spending your whole, all your life trying to change reality into something that you think it should be, I mean, you're basically, one, you're beating your head against the wall, but two, and you're not participating in the real world, so you're not really getting anything done. And then um, I think it's really easy then to to start getting, and you touch on this in the book a little bit, the the victim mentality, where when the world's not like you think it should be, and then, you know, you, you start to feel powerless. You're not, you can't fabricate a, a new reality and you're spending all this time trying to do that. And then you just end up, you end up actually losing your own personal power in that way. And you, and you just participate in this, in this slave morality where you're getting taken advantage of by maybe this master class. Yeah. And, and you know, that's, that's kind of what the non-aggression principle is really. It's a, it's a cry against being, um, well, aggressed against it's, it's, um, mm-hmm. and right. it's born out of the slave morality because you can't be, if you can't be the aggressor, if you're not in a position to be the aggressor, uh, naturally 
you kind of have this impulse to want to argue against aggression itself. Um, you know, in the book, I, I kind of compared, I think I used um, uh, the, the deer and the wolf, I think was the analogy I used, you know, mm-hmm. it's, it's perfectly natural for the, for the deer, not, not to be friends with the wolf and to, to kind of have that animosity towards him. But it's, it's a whole nother thing. If the, if the deer were to make the suggestion that the wolf shouldn't exist, you know, it's, that's kind of a conflict with reality itself. Um, you know, so how do, what I would suggest in the amoral perspective is, well, how do we deal with the wolf? If, if you are the deer, how do you deal with the wolf? And um, can you, can you give yourself, you know, like Nietzsche would say, the claws to, to um, become, you know, a competitor against the wolf, you know, so it's, that's much more useful to me when it comes to being liberated is to do the world the way it is. Stop trying to um, have this moral evaluation of everything you see, because I mean, I spoke to that in, in my intro that I was, uh, I was taken in by Stefan Molyneux when I first kind of came to the libertarian anarchist uh, side mm-hmm. of things. And uh, he was a self-proclaimed moralist. He, he was very big on moral principles and, and uh, the, self, uh, the self-ownership and not aggression and all of that. And that caused me more, um, more anger and more almost bitterness and depression because I saw everything around me as just corrupted and all immoral and everything's out of order. And right. it was, and I mean, it's just, it's not a fulfilling way to live and it's not a useful way to live because at that point you start, um, you start hating, you start hating your own reality. You start, and you can't, you can't live like that uh, effectively And it. And as Nietzsche, you know, points out in his works that eventually breeds uh, nihilism, um, which is just a complete devaluation of everything. It's, it's really just the rejection of life itself. Um, and unless that's the end you want to meet, I would caution against moral dogmatism. Yeah, that's an interesting point, because a lot of times when people are reading Nietzsche or even just getting into existentialism in general, there's this kind of element of despair because there you can't ever put your finger on anything because it's, in some sense, it's this anti-rationalism. It's not really, it's not, I wouldn't say it's anti-reason, <laughs> but, you know, it's not, it's not, it's not going to ever conform to any particular rationalized dogma like we're talking about. And so it, it, you end to end up, you know, going into this place where, I mean, Nietzsche talks about it as the abyss or, you know, experiencing uh, this despair, but actually, again, there, there is this light at the end of the tunnel, because once you let go of the need for the moral dogma, then you actually are free from it. And you can see the world doesn't, it's, it doesn't have to be perfect for you to participate in it, you know, without being right. like you're talking about, without being frustrated or without being just, uh, you know, without without going into bouts of depression about the extent of the corruption that you see in the world all around you. Instead, it's just the, you know, it's just the natural interplay of, of the will to power as it, as it plays itself out. And this is totally normal. And, you know, if you step it up and you participate in it, then you, you know, you get your piece of the action, you get to have your story as well. And, uh, so you get something out of it. Um, uh, so that's an interesting point because it, it's so easy to fall into these like these depths of despair, and maybe even there's a part of the process of of liberation or understanding what personal freedom really is uh, is to kind of break free of these uh, of these dogmatic systems. I mean, most of us are going to be raised inside one of those, you know, and kind of coming to grips with the fact that that n- none of it is is really real, but that reality itself is is more open-ended, I guess, you know, it, it gives, it gives you that light at the end of the tunnel is what I'm trying to try to say. It's, it is hard to talk about Nietzsche, isn't it? Cause it is difficult. <laughs> yeah. And you know, it, it goes to his, his vision of nobility and being able to be the master of your own values uh, or the creator in, in his Ubermensch idea, the creator of your own values. And it's, I think it's debatable whether that's even possible, but sure. um, it's, it might be a, a useful concept to strive for if you're somebody who wants to be free. Um, and that's, that's really another strong theme in my book is that, you know, I think maybe the majority of people out there 
desire their systems and they're unable to move past systematic structure and it's it's a very difficult thing to move past and mm-hmm. to some extent we all view the world through some system uh, we can't escape that we have to systematize certain things in our life in order to function properly but in in terms of moral systemization um, I think there's there's a more negative um, element to doing that than freeing yourself from that and I think that's kind of the big difference between um, those of the mainstream libertarian um, ethic and those who actually want to be liberated is that these guys over here are simply looking for greener pastures where these ones over here truly want to be liberated in a real sense. They don't, they don't want to be that sheep within the, the fences of your greener pasture. Uh, they don't want to have that shepherd. Um, they, they want to be liberated. And I think mm-hmm. the moral perspective, the more of the master morality, the, the nobility uh, comes into play uh, if that's your ultimate goal. Yeah, it's fascinating. It's it's a interesting path to take, and um, I think ultimately, like we've been discussing, it's the natural path. It's probably the more real path than constructing these rationalizations and these dogmas. Um, as you said that, I was reminded again of the left right paradigm, which drives me nuts because it seems to me like the entirety, and even amongst anarchists, as you I'm sure know, there's the communist anarchists, and then there's the the capitalist anarchists, and they're always arguing amongst themselves. It's just as it's just as pointless and destructive as the Republicans fighting against the Democrats all the time. Um, and this whole thing, from this Nietzschean point of view, and maybe we can kind of because one of, one of the things that reading Nietzsche did to me was. On, a, on this practical level, get me to kind of understand how the state and what the state actually is and what the people who, who construct the state actually are. Because from, you know, after I went, after I read Nietzsche, I basically started to realize that like, oh, the people that construct the state are, are, are more like, um, gangsters it's like a big gang and they've got this cartel system because when you start analyzing instead of analyzing it from say a marxist perspective or this left-right paradigm perspective i just started to look at things in terms of power you know like the u.s military or the the british empire or who were these guys what were they doing and and analyzing it in terms of just the the straight up power trip it just i started to i feel like it, it was able to help me understand exactly how they use this master slave morality and and the state so that all of us you know who are not in control of the state the ones of us you know we're down here most people are participating in the left right paradigm fighting amongst themselves uh just participating in this dogmatic slave morality system that keeps them oppressed and keeps them uh beneath these you know these power players who are actually in control of the state so if you're trying to get rid of the state certainly you've got to be able to have the strength to confront these people that are you know that are the power players that are behind the state um and at the very least you've got to psychologically separate yourself from the state you've got to go undergo this process of personal liberation to say hey i'm not going to participate in this anymore because this is just keeping me down you know this is keeping me using my labor and my willpower and, and to, to pay these guys, you know? <laughs> right. And, you know, I think both what's, I had, a, I see a striking similarity in between Nietzsche's kind of overman idea and Ayn Rand's John Galt, right? Mm. They, they exit the system and they go and create their own vision of what they, they want the world to be. Um, I think that's a powerful um, idea, and I think that's something that's that should be explored more. And you mentioned uh, Derek was on your show. You know, he's an agorist. Um, he's he's mm-hmm. going that direction. I see more than more than most. Uh, that's kind of what agorism is all about. Uh, right. So I think that is is a, an effective tool. But as far as the state goes, you know, you mentioned it's it's the it's a small group, almost like a mafia that owns it and uh, controls it. And, you know, I see that the state is kind of a collective of both the masses wanting to be protected and comforted and being, you know, cared for in this, in this fenced in pasture. And they're obviously being controlled by this smaller collective, if we call them the shepherds and the sheepdogs. And, you know, that's kind of what I see, but even deeper than that, I would say that the state really is, 
is is a manifestation of the rules that society at large wants to um, wants to see uh, implemented. I think the 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 state is simply a method um, that's on the surface level, but the the substructures that create these these rules and the desire to have rulers and sheep, you know, I think that's a much more um, much more ancient um, production than than just the state. You know, I think too often the libertarian or the anarchist views the state as simply the incorporated institution and nothing more. Mm-hmm. I think that's that's a flawed perspective. I think it goes much deeper than that, and it's society is its own type of tyranny. Um, you, you know, you can't just do whatever you want within society. It has its own rules, regardless of a state or not. Um, so to view the state as simply the incorporated institution um, is not accurate, in my opinion. I think you have to consider um, how the state formed in the first place. And, you know, if it's something that's so opposed to what humans want, it wouldn't exist. Um, and we all know sure. that the state is is harmful. But, uh, you know, you can make the argument that a free society is more beneficial to the masses. But since when are the masses concerned what's most beneficial to them? I mean, we have McDonald's, we have dr- drugs and all sorts of harmful things that we do to ourselves mm-hmm. to think that people actually desire what's more beneficial for them is is ridiculous in my opinion. So I don't think that these common arguments um, are effective at all in liberating a society and especially not yourself. Well, I think this point that you bring up about how when we're rationalizing, especially libertarians or even just political philosophy in general, and we're making these rationalizations about government, it's like we don't we think of the government, like you you said, as this institution. Um, And there's no such thing as that is the institution of government. This is an idea that we have in our minds. But ultimately, there's people with guns, you know, (laughs) that are making I mean, there's or there's really rich people who are paying people with guns and they're calling themselves the government. And that's the thing about, you know, where Nietzsche can come in. And like, from my perspective, like I was describing a little bit before, like on a practical level, it's like, oh, you know, this is a power play. And we're all involved in this power play and we can't, we, we go astray when we're creating these, like th- this rationalization, this concept of government, and we're pretending like it's a real thing. And then we can spend our whole lives fighting this concept of government, but really there's actually people that are the, you know, that are the, part of the institution. And then there is this deeper level, like you're talking about of culture and cultural indoctrination you talk quite a bit about Christianity in your book. I was going to um, recommend, I don't know if you've heard of Joe Atwell before. He did this, he wrote this book called Caesar's Messiah, which if you haven't read it, I'd recommend it about the Roman Empire and, and its use of Christianity. You were talking, you talked, you had a line in the book about Constantine and how he, uh, you know, and, and, then, and then how Christianity became this religion of the Roman Empire. So I, I think there's a lot of, actual cultivation by this master class of this slave dogma i mean they want to teach us not to be independent people right they want to teach us how to be dependent on them so um you know there's actually is a long history of of these power players these people who are behind the state you know the concept of the state uh and they don't want to teach us how to be liberated people they want to teach us how to follow dogmatic belief systems that aren't ever going to actually result in in tipping the balance of power in our favor you know right well and nietzsche points that out brilliantly you know he says that the masters and the slaves both agree on endorsing a certain types of qualities within within uh, the culture you know those being the qualities that are beneficial to both the ruler and the slave um, and and those are really born at least in nietzsche's perspective um, from the they weren't born from Christianity, but Christianity was kind of the social coup that brought them forth on a wide scale. Um, and yeah, like you're saying, they they like probably the libertarian argument, you know, because it's it's just in keeping with exactly what they they want to see. It, it's beneficial to them, you know, to mm-hmm. to um, reject. Uh, 
this this power to to argue against the power because they know the power is not going away so long as they have it and and right. to sit there and argue against it is almost you know i don't want to um disparage some of the greatest thinkers out there but it's almost naive in a sense to to try to argue against it um it's certainly not practical to liberate yourself and and that's really my aim first and foremost is on the individual level to liberate yourself um and then if you want to tackle liberating the masses, by all means, go for it. But uh, you stand no chance if you just simply join another collective that's preaching for greener pastures uh, using the same exact method. Uh, you know, Nietzsche calls out this, um, this metamorphosis of the will to power, which I speak to a little bit in the book on the, the trend you see in how the weak and the slave class try to uh, acquisition this power um, and it's the same cycle over and over and over again. You can see it in the Libertarian Party just as much as you can see it in uh, Black Lives Matter, in Antifa, in the left, the right. It doesn't matter. You name mm-hmm. it, that's, that's the cycle we see. And it doesn't, produ- it doesn't produce a liberated society. It doesn't even produce a liberated individual. It just produces a slight variation of the same system. Um, and that's, like I said, you know, it's just not effective. Yeah, it is. It's interesting. Um, how do you produce an effective movement? Putting all of these ideas in place. I mean, I think it's just getting getting these kinds of ideas out there about personal liberation, and then hoping enough individuals kind of per, you know participate in this personal journey, and then and then it ultimately it will break the back of of these uh, of these. Uh, power mongers, if you will, or this this upper class, or these people who are behind this operation of the state, because it takes participating in a slave morality in order to give the master morality of the power. <laughs> you know, yeah. right? The master. There's more of us than there are of them, right? If we just right. stopped part, playing their game, then they wouldn't have the power anymore. We we would take the power back for ourselves. Um, and that's definitely a, a longer term vision of of liberation than winning the next election for the libertarian party or um you know trying to convince somebody else of your particular new dogma or your rationalization of the way things ought to be um challenging let's get a little bit into uh, you know we've touched on christianity just a little bit but then nietzsche also goes on to talk about and i cuz i think i've been doing more and more interviews uh, lately about the idea of scientism and about this cuz we're with the coronavirus and everything that's going on here um there've been a lot of people who've been talking about this idea of technocracy on um, the big data people trying to kind of centralize uh, everybody's information with the 5G coming online and then using all the information in order to centralize and control the means of production where we're all just kind of in line with this this um, technocratic system that's based on science, basically. And Nietzsche actually, like you're talking about, so so far ahead of his time, 150 years ago, was already calling out uh, the philosophers and the scientists that were working on these kinds of rationalizations in order just to kind of control people and perpetuate this master-slave dichotomy. Um, and we're seeing that now with what I call, people call scientism, almost like this worship of the guys in, in the white lab coats. And and to me, this is just the next iteration of this master-slave thing going on. And the more people are falling for it, and it's so easy to fall for it. I mean, it's just, I guess... Like um, you discuss this in the book and you put it really well, whereas in one way, you know, God can be your authority, but in another way, you can just replace God with science and you've got another authority and the scientists are the new priests, but it's the same system. It's the same oppressive system that we're seeing going on today. Do you want to, you know, what are your thoughts about that? Right. So, you know, the characters change, but the plot remains the same. Um, you know, and and the people, let's call them the sheep, they fall right into it. Um, and even even in the in a surface level too. You know, you're on Facebook, and Facebook wants you to agree to your terms. You know, we don't even hesitate anymore. We just give right. them <laughs> give them the information, and then you know, 
there might be something on the news that says they're taking all of our data and then it's, we freak out for a week and then we're back to, you know, accepting all the terms and agreements. So it's, it's, you know, we, that's a surface level argument of it, obviously, but uh, you know, Nietzsche spoke to when he said God is dead and he made that kind of, that's that declaration. um, Much of what resulted from that is he was realizing uh, that fact was replacing the myth and, um, but even deeper than that, what, what was just incredible, what I think was one of his greatest um, revelations uh, was that science itself was born from the, the Christian ethic, the, you know, that uh, Christianity placed such a high value on truth, on, on being truthful um, and seeking, you know, the, the way, the truth, you know, all of that, that uh, it's, it produced uh, in the minds of men that, uh, truth was good. It was something to seek, go after. And that, uh, you know, it was one of the highest values. Um, and of course that, uh, that kind of created a, a cancer within Christianity itself. And as a result, said, you know, God is dead. Um, but it was a result of Christianity itself. And it just shows how, how the morality, the moral system doesn't go away, but the characters will change. So you have the moral system that emphasized truth. Well, that kind of killed God in a sense, but then it just simply, we didn't say goodbye to the moral system. The system stayed in place, but now we had to replace God with something else. Well, it could be reason. It could be uh, science, you know, the materialism. Um, mm-hmm. It, like I said, the, the characters change, but the plot remains the same. We haven't really evolved out of that yet. And it's, uh, it'll be interesting to see where we go with all of it. Um, I'm not sure, you know, I see the the idea of liberty kind of fading away in some respects from our, from our Western culture, uh, something that we really produced this idea of liberty and whether you want to make the argument of whether we were consistent with it is irrelevant. We produced this strong sense of liberty and the value of liberty. And I kind mm-hmm. of see that going away now. And it'll be interesting to see where the moral system takes us and which, god so to speak it replaces uh replaces itself with and where that takes us um i don't think it will be a better place um but uh you know and i call this out in the book i think there's many good reasons to save the libertarian ethic um as flawed as it might be and even though it's still a construction of this moral system i think there's still a great many reasons to to argue for this ethic um but it's it's going away more and more and it's going to be replaced with something else um and i'm not really excited to see what that is and you're bringing you know to mind this this weird dystopian type future that might be coming up and i don't know what that will look like but i'm i'm not too excited for it <laughs> yeah i know what you mean i you know one of the things that happened with this coronavirus when the lockdowns happened a few months ago i was talking to a friend of mine you know this was back in march i guess like right right when they were talking about everybody's got a shelter in place and i said well shouldn't we at least have a conversation about the right of freedom of assembly you, you know before we do something like this this should be a conversation that we should have i mean i'm not saying i'm right or who's right or wrong but it was like nobody even thought about it you know and that's that's where things get really dangerous like hey if if your freedoms are are you know not are, are just not important to you like people it, they, it wasn't important enough these this idea of freedom is no longer important enough to people to even have a discussion about hey should we get rid of our freedoms because we're scared of of this virus right now or at, you know um no we're not even going to have that conversation we're just going to you know, get rid of the, get rid of the bill of rights (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) and not even talk about it because, Hey, we're, we're scared. We're feeling a little scared right now. And uh, so let's just ditch it and, and not, and act like it never existed. And that is frightening, man. I mean, you talked in the book about this, you know, community over the individual. And we're, I hear a lot of that. I mean, just over and over again, people talk about how, oh, it's the idea of freedom. Americans, I think Bill Gates said it straight up the other day. Um, you know, the problem with Americans is they believe in freedom. So they weren't able to get on top of the coronavirus fast enough. And, and it's just, 
And these arguments over and over again that the needs of the community are more important than the needs of the individual. Um, whereas I think what we're talking about when we're talking about Nietzsche and the will to power would be individuals need to be powerful enough to be able to help their communities. You know, And this is why you have to cultivate strong individuals. You can't just let the individual you know, um, be subservient to the community because ultimately it's going to be destructive of, of both the individual and the community. There's no way it's going to come. It, it's not going to, it's just not going to end well, right? The story never ends well when, when you start doing this. And I don't know why it's so challenging for people. Um, you know, I guess analyzing it from this Nietzschean perspective, that people are just so into participating in, in this slave morality that they've lost their connection to their will to power and they're not standing up to it. They don't even think it's important anymore. They're just following what the, the master class is telling them to do and they're not participating in it anymore. You know, it's, it's scary. It really is. Yeah. And I tend to take a more pessimistic view of, of human nature. Really. Um, I think individuals who truly desire to be free and liberated and, and value individual responsibility, those who would choose freedom over safety, security, comfort, and all of that. Mm-hmm. I think they're the rare exception to what we see in the masses. I think the masses, it, what you can argue with them until you're blue in the face on how freedom is going to be preferable for them and mutually beneficial, and it just won't matter. Uh, I think they're, they're somebody, you know, their character is that of the sheep, and, and mm-hmm. they will they will be guided by the shepherd and the sheepdogs. Um, I think that is just who they are. And again, I'm a more pessimistic type person. So, I mean, feel free to disagree with that. It's, it's just how I tend to, to feel about the masses. Right. And I think that, that the individuals who really want to be free, they're a rare breed. They aren't the, you know, I liken them to the wolf in the, in the book. Um, they're, they're not sheep is essentially what it is. So I think, you know, the fact that people drive around in their cars with gloves and a face mask and they want to shut everything down, even though it's stupid and terribly ineffective and disastrous, uh, destructive, it doesn't matter that it just doesn't matter at the end of the day right. um, they, to think that people will do what is actually best for them is we see examples every day why that is not the case. You know, like I said, every day, I, you know, there's a McDonald's restaurant not far from my house. Every day I drive by it, it's lined up with traffic. People, you know, shoving their face full of food that is not good for them. Yeah. Like, em- empirically, it's not yeah. good for you. And it's just, you know, here I am drinking, you know, I got a glass of, of, of bourbon here and I, you know, I enjoy a cigar every once in a while. It, to think that we, are going to be influenced by what is best for us in actuality is, is a flawed way of thinking. It's, it's not how we do business. We're primarily emotional creatures capable of rationality. We're, we are not rational creatures, you know, we're not robots. Well, I really appreciate the, the book and, um, you know, I think it's important. I hope more people will listen to this and think about picking up a little bit of Nietzsche, you know, and, and definitely at least check out the book. It's a great uh, kind of introduction and getting getting a, a taste of how Nietzsche's philosophy can be used to understand political philosophy a little bit better, a little bit deeper, and um, as a path towards personal um, personal liberation. I think it's really important to understand Nietzsche's point of view. So um, appreciate that that uh, you're putting this book out and this was a great conversation it's difficult to have conversations about Nietzsche and I I do I think that we did a decent job of kind of coming around to like understanding uh, some some central points that um, are challenging to have a a good discourse on so uh, I hope people who listen to this um, you know can come away thinking they understand Nietzsche just a little bit better than they did when they started listening to this conversation so um, do you have, do you want to let my listeners know, uh, where they can get a copy of the book or where they can find out more information about your work? Yeah. So, uh, right now, if you were to go onto my Facebook profile, Instagram, anything, um, you would find a link to, uh, Amazon where it's being sold right now. I do everything from Amazon. They make it easy to print on demand and all of that. So right now, Amazon is the only place it's being sold. I have links, um, on my Facebook page. You can look up Liberty and the Will to Power 
on Facebook as well. And you'll see a link there and uh, a little bit more description of the book. All right. Sounds great. Uh, and I'll just tell everyone that if you haven't already, you can check out more of my work at my website. It's www.theshiftnow.com. And I am on YouTube and uh, on Facebook at The Shift with Doug McKenty. And I'm on Twitter at D McKenty. So hope to see you guys uh, in the virtual reality. And thanks again, Tanner, for being on the show. And thanks so much for your work. Really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you for having me on. I enjoyed it. Yeah, you bet. Have a great day. You too. Bye. Well, all right, everybody. Uh, that was a pretty fun conversation. For those of you who don't know, I studied philosophy in college, so I have a decent background in, in uh, Nietzsche, and it's just been a long time since I've had a conversation uh, about him with somebody who was that knowledgeable. So that was super fun for me. And uh, also really interesting to kind of get that, take that deep dive uh, into what Nietzsche is really talking about in a lot of his works. Um, his Philosophy is difficult to grasp. He doesn't really use logic like we discussed, um, logic or reason, and he finds uh, deeper psychological drives behind what really motivates humans in their actions, and so his writing is very reflective of that, and it takes uh, a fair amount of interpretation. Um, so uh, having that conversation actually really, to me, it helped uh, to refine my interpretation of Nietzsche, and I, I hope it did for you too. If you haven't read any of his work, I suggest uh, looking him up and, and picking up a few um, of his writings because uh, it's a it's a different perspective. Uh, one of the things that I'm thinking about um, when talking about Nietzsche is how he is just so far outside of that left-right paradigm. So the left-right paradigm is typically, uh, and it's most simplistic, the uh, argument between Hegel and Marx uh, about how history was evolving according to this materialistic dialectic, as they call it, from thesis to antithesis. Uh, and then um, back into synthesis. And uh, Hegel's argument is that uh, the whole process ends, the end of history when human beings uh, become uh, civilized uh, and are done with uh, this evolutionary cycle will be uh, during this age of representative democracy. And uh, Marx, of course, adds one more step along that path uh, which is after representative democracy, then uh, there will be the uh, revolution of the proletariat, and then it'll end up with the communist utopia. And that is the end of history for Marx. So this is the left-right paradigm that we all use ad nauseum today, even though it seems barely functional uh, for any of us, uh, nor does it seem to benefit our societies in any way whatsoever, which is why I really like to visit Nietzsche, because he was writing about at the same time, uh, maybe a little bit, a few decades later, um, kind of contemporary to Marx. Um, I think he lived a few years longer than Marx, but... Um, but uh, there, at the last half of the 19th century, Hegel was more at the earlier half of the 19th century. Um, but in the last half of the 19th century, Nietzsche just basically came up with this totally different idea. Like, hey, no, civilization doesn't evolve uh, according to this uh, rational construct that you guys have invented. Uh, it's actually propelled by what he describes as this will to power, which is uh, those individuals that could uh, transcend their cultural conditioning and uh, recreate you know, new levels of experience and then teach them to the rest of the human race. And this is how culture evolved uh, in Nietzsche's world. Uh, and I just really appreciate a different perspective on that because I think we need to be thinking outside the box of the left-right paradigm if we're going to get out of the problems uh, in the modern day. And I certainly believe that the upper classes, what Derek Bros calls the predator class, uses the left-right paradigm just to divide and conquer us while we argue over this end of history, this theoretical end of history. They're the guys that are reading the Nietzsche and know how the world actually works. So <laughs> maybe there's something to be learned from that. Uh, so I really appreciated that Tanner did this work to bring uh, this post-Nietzschean philosophy into the world of anarchy and um, wrote this little book about it. It's, a, it's, not a, it's not a real complicated read, and it's pretty short, so I'd recommend people pick it up and check it out um, just to kind of uh, get your mind around some of these concepts that, like I said, they are difficult to grasp um, because they're not logical on the face of it. It's not just a logical argument. It's kind of like a big picture thing. You kind of have to read a fair amount of Nietzsche and actually digest it for a little while, and then you can start to, to get an understanding of where he's coming from. Um, 
But I'm glad also that we had that conversation because Nietzsche gets this bad rap where the will to power is often interpreted as a power trip and that people are just trying to be controlling and that his, you know, his main character, his new philosopher um, or his Superman, as he refers to, to this person, uh, is a sort of a, almost a Hitlerian figure or a Stalin figure where they take control over the societies and their tyrants. Um, and I think that we covered that pretty clearly and kind of contrasted Nietzsche's idea of power um, with Tolkien's idea of the power, where the ring of power corrupts absolutely. Um, I think, as we discussed, Nietzsche's idea of power is more about uh, being an individuating power. Um, I almost think about it, and I brought this up a little bit, this concept of the sage, uh, as someone who is enlightened in Eastern philosophy, who has also been able to transcend their cultural conditioning and see the world as it really is. I don't know if Nietzsche would have gone there, <laughs> but, um, you know, I kind of make this this figure. What Nietzsche's talking about with the Superman uh, could also maybe be interpreted as the shaman in other cultures, um, or like we discussed the journey of the hero that we have in the ancient mythologies of, of Greek, well, really all over the world, but also in the Greek and Roman world, um, before this obsession with logic and reason came about in the pre-Aristotelian period. Um, <clears throat> so I think there's a lot to it. I think it's uh, worth it to keep your mind open and not just dismiss uh, Nietzsche as some kind of a power trip or a narcissist or a corrupting influence, uh, but keep an open mind as to what he's talking about in terms of... Um, you know, his concerns that logical arguments really are just solipsism, just um, semantics, you know, just ways of, of this back and forth arguing that really accomplishes nothing when at the end of the day, uh, the person who just exhibits the most power, um, or at least the person who's the least influenced, you know, choosing to do his or her own uh, thing rather than doing his or her own you know, following what, what the others are saying um, and just doing it despite what, what the crowd says. Um, there's something, I think, uh, valuable uh, to having that kind of integrity. So uh, that's where I think uh, Nietzsche was coming from, and I was glad that Tanner put it into this book uh, and described how Nietzsche's philosophy can be used um, to help people individuate themselves from the state so that the state you know, at least psychologically, doesn't really have this kind of control or power trip over them, and they can make their own choices and decisions without being influenced um, by the state's dictates. And this is <laughs> seems to be becoming uh, more and more true, especially in this time of COVID, where a state is really upping its game and uh, flexing its muscles over the rest of us in terms of telling us what we can wear and where we can go, and, uh, you know, very soon probably mandating this vaccine. So, uh, these ideas very interesting and enlightening, and I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. Uh, remember, if you like what you're listening to, um, you can find more information at www.theshiftnow.com or The Shift with Doug McKenty on Facebook and YouTube, uh, and I'm also on Twitter at McKenty, so you can catch me there. And uh, I hope you keep paying attention. we got another good conversation coming up next week with Phoenix Aurelius, uh, the alchemist. So we'll get a totally different twist on this story of reality. Um, and I hope you'll enjoy that one as well. So thanks for listening, and I'll see you on the flip side. Take care. <laughs>